we have been talking about Job for a little while now and then kind of put Job on uh, standby until we got ourselves through the summer. And so now we're going to be introducing this book. As we consider uh, the book of Job and, and, um, and what it's going to be all about, and this is what's kind of weird, like I have an introduction for the introduction, a little redundant, but, uh, you know, just, just work with me. But one of the things that as, as I kind of approach a message, a series of messages uh, or, or lessons or whatever it might be, is that, you know, we've got to work some background material uh, through so that we can kind of lay the groundwork so that we can um, understand, uh, you know, what the book is, is somewhat all about. And you know, for some of us, that's like, man, I love that stuff. And for others of us, it's like, come on, let's get to the verses and everything. And and I, I'm just kind of asking you, you know, let's work through this together. I, I think it's going to be a good thing, but um, you'll see where we're going. But what I want to do is really kind of frame uh, what we're going to be about. Um, the book of Job, it's, it's, a, it's a big book, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But as as we're thinking through all of this, Okay, I just want to answer the big question: Why did I choose this? Why are we going through this book? And and I've said before, you know, you folks ask some amazing questions. I mean, it, so I want to answer that for you. Many of us uh, are aware that the primary themes of Job is suffering, suffering and things related to it. More specifically, the suffering of a righteous person. And as I've thought about that, I've tried to look at our church, and we have a significant number of people who have either recently gone through or are currently going through some various trials. So my hope is that this study will be used by God's Spirit to minister to those who are going through or have gone through significant trials and even sufferings. The other aspect of that is every one of us will face future trials in our lives. They're just going to come. It, it really is a part of life. And sometimes, based upon being a believer, uh, those can even be heightened. And as a church, we are also to go through these trials with our brothers and sisters. And so part of being able to do that effectively is to see what happened with Job. I want to remind us that Romans 12, 15 says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Sometimes we don't know exactly what to say or how to say it or whatever, and I don't know that we're going to get all those answers from Job, but there is going to be some things that, that we're going to speak to in relation to that. So as we're thinking through this, it really comes down to we have folks who I, I think have a, a present need related to uh, enduring through trials. And then all of us are going to have a future need to maybe glean some things from this book. I also want to share my approach to the book. Um, there's a lot of different ways, angles that, that, that someone can take in, in any book and still stay true to the text, okay? I'm not talking about just going off the rails here. But a couple of things that I want, us to, I want you to know that, that we're going to be focusing on. The first one is a literal interpretation. Now, I understand, you know, that would be expected. But there are those who see Job really as a very large allegory. That everything means something else and really there was no um, real person named Job. It was just a, a, a name that they put on this book and, and everything about it is, is really just um, allegorical as in it stands for this and it stands for that. And when we approach the scriptures like that without reason. I mean, don't get me wrong. There, there is, there is um, uh, picture language in the scriptures, okay? But when it's not obviously that and we turn it into that, we can make it say whatever we want. And when that takes place, it's going to erode the real purpose behind it. And so um, I just want you to know, we're going to look at it from a literal standpoint. Also, we're going to focus on the practical rather than the academic. And, and you'll understand that a little bit more as we move forward. 
um, because there are some traps, so to speak, you know, that, that we can get into. So I want to define this a little more specifically. I don't mean that we're going to um, uh, not get in depth into the book, that we're not going to look at some facts or things like that. We must thoroughly investigate the text in order to come away with the proper interpretation or understanding of the text. And then once we have a proper understanding of the text, that's where we're going to be able to best apply the text, right? But there are a couple of things that I mentioned that, that I want us to relate to when it comes to this. First off, uh, I want to favor subjects over words. And you say, well, why are you saying that? Because uh, a man named Alden said it better than me. He said, except for the book of Isaiah, Job has the largest number of words found only once in the Bible of any book, of any book in the Bible. Okay, So there's only one other book that has words unique to it. Uh, more, more so. It says, and the words occur only a handful of times elsewhere in the Old Testament are found throughout the book. All right. I kind of put that in my own little terms here. That's the S.E. Kiger commentary on the commentary. Okay. <laughs> Which is this. Job has the most unique words, except for Isaiah, in the Old Testament and contains many other words uncommonly used in the Old Testament. So here's the point. If we're going through here and we're constantly trying to figure out the in-depth meaning of every word, uh, we're just never going to get to the book, okay? So they're there for a purpose, and we're going to do our best at it, but we're going to stick primarily to the subjects, not get caught up in all of the minutia of the words, okay? So we're going to make sure we understand the passage and do our best to interpret it. We're also going to choose the concrete over the abstract, Another way of saying this is that we will focus on the observable and reasonable and avoid the vague and theoretical. All right. Again, that's this idea of, oh, we've got some poetry language here and we've got some flowery words and we can kind of go off and, you know, we're going to try to keep it tight. We're going to try to stay close to the meaning. We're also going to center on theme, not individual subjects. For example, we get so caught up with the person and activities of Satan that it takes away from the main purpose of the book, right? We might become so overwhelmed with the suffering of Job as we see it in the beginning of the book and even throughout the book that we miss important truths found in the 70% of the book beyond where it's explicitly talked about. This is a couple of small examples. There's other ones that we can get into throughout the book. So, so here's kind of, well, let me give you one more thing. I, I want us to, so those three were related to focus on the practical rather than the academic. By academic, like I say, it doesn't mean we're not, we're not talking scholarly or something like that. Academic has to do with that more abstract stuff, all right? But lastly here, encourage and facilitate personal application. That's really what we want to be all about. If, if we're looking at these words and their meanings and, and the nuances and, and oh, it's, it's not used anywhere else and all these other different things, and we're building on facts, 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 it might be difficult to kind of push through and figure out, okay, what does it mean to me? All right? So that's, that's where we're headed. Um, As you see this slide up here and you kind of see the, the, the picture of it, the idea is to work a balance between individual words and subjects and the overall purpose of the book to try as best as we can to get to God's desired outcome, right? Why did he write the book? It wasn't necessarily to figure out every nuance of the words. It was to understand the text and be able to live by it. I also want to encourage you as a congregation to have an approach to this book. The first is to receive the book with fresh eyes. I imagine that a number of you are very familiar with the book, particularly the beginning and the end. So let's look at this with fresh eyes and, and really ask ourselves, okay, God, what do you want to teach me? I Notice I didn't say, that I'm going to be delivering for you all kinds of brand new information that nobody else has ever taught you. 
Now, that's not the case, but it's looking at it with fresh eyes. Exercise endurance. It's a long book. I'm not necessarily saying we're going to be in here for a super long time because of how we're going to approach the book. But at the same time, as we particularly get into the conversations, it is an ongoing conversation. There's multiple people involved, and they sometimes refer back to other parts of the conversation that they've already had. Okay? And we're going to be looking at this week to week. So we're going to have to keep linked and I just want you to understand that, boy, if the majority of the book is, is uh, um, Job interacting with his friends, God put that in there for a reason. But, and I'm only going by my experience. My experience has been, and I'll admit in both previous teaching and in hearing the book of Job taught or preached, that the bookends are really what are focused on. So again, we're not going to get caught up in all of the you know, extreme details of the conversations, but we've got to pull out what the Lord is wanting us to hear through it. So that's going to take some time, all right? Next, make practical application and put truth into practice. Um, now you might say to yourself, well, isn't that what we're supposed to do all the time? Well, yes. But folks, I'm just going to tell you, I've already been learning some lessons in my study where whether I know it or not, I have not been applying it. You see where I'm going? I, I'm, 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 how do I say this? I resemble some of the things in the book that I should not. Okay? That's what I'm talking about. And so we'll discover those together. But when we're, be, we're given truth, particularly truth that can help us endure some of the things that we are going through, man, we need to apply it. All right? There's some, there's some real hope and some real freedom in this book. So that's, that's the introduction to the introduction. All right? So now what I want to do is I want to look at the general overview of the book. The book of Job begins rather abruptly. Um, and let me read for you just the first five verses again. Uh, in Job 1, it says, And there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen. 500 female donkeys and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now his sons would go and feast in their houses, each one his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, It may be that my sons had, have sinned and cursed God in their hearts." Thus Job did regularly. The Hebrew, um, the way the Hebrew words the beginning, it literally says, a man was in the land of us. Now, that's not usually how the books of the Bible start, but it's just very blunt, very matter of fact, it just starts. And, and it just kind of goes off to the races, and we're not really given a huge amount of detail of this man's life, um, but yet, there's a lot of activity that goes on within a very specific part of his life, right? Uh, as his suffering takes place and as his friends come. And then I want to talk about the author for a minute. There is no author given for the book of Job. And again, I'm not going to speculate. Uh, that just gets into all of those academic things that don't necessarily help us with the understanding of the book. Now, the book may have been passed down orally, but at some point, the Holy Spirit inspired someone to write Job's account. And, and frankly, this is a book that has been uh, accepted, uh, you know, for, for uh, obviously centuries uh, by the, the, uh, the Jews, by, by the, the, um, the Hebrews. And so this is not something that has been 
a, a source of, you know, I'm not sure if we should include this or not or whatever, uh, which is kind of interesting based upon what we're going to see a little bit later as we talk about Job. Then there's the literary structure. That's a real fancy way of saying how the book is written and put together. Okay? Now, again, I understand that for some of us, we're like, okay, the glaze is starting. Okay? But, but just work with me because this is important. All right? <laughs> there are three major sections to the book of Job. The first one is Job and his testing. Okay? We know that. The second is Job's conversations with his friends. And you know what? Sometimes I say, yeah, we know that. There may be some folks that are, that are newer to the faith, that are newer to the scriptures and the word, and you may not know these things, okay? That's another reason why we go through them. So there's Job and his testing, Job's conversation with his friends, which again is, is more the bulk of the book, and then the Lord speaks to Job. So these three sections are the things that we're going to be going through and obviously continuing with Job and his testing uh, next week. Job is written in Hebrew poetry. Um, I don't know about you. Poetry is kind of like paintings. It's like, oh, that's beautiful. And then you look at some other ones and you go, what, what, what is it? I, I don't get it. I don't see it. That's kind of the way poetry is, right? Oh, I can relate to that. That's amazing. What are they saying? You know? So that's kind of that artsy aspect of things. I don't think that God is writing in a way where we're all going to say, what is he saying? But it is in poetry form. Poetry uses a wider variety of words and language types than other uh, aspects, other types of literature. For example, if we're talking about a narrative, which is really a, a, a significant part of the Old Testament, it's just writing what happened. It's, it's telling truthfully and true stories, okay? Stories not as in we're making up stories, but we're just telling a story. And really, Job is a story of a man, but it's written in poetry form. So we have different ways that it's used, uh, words are used, different types of words, and it just makes it a little more difficult at times. It's also structured differently than normal speech. And within Job, there are even different types of stanzas. So what I wanted to do is just uh, exercise ourselves just a little bit. I've taken some portions of a couple of poems. Uh, we're not studying poems. We're just looking at a couple of forms of poetry to kind of get that feel, okay? And that's the only reason why we're doing it. Because really, the poetry feel is lost a lot when we're taking it from the Hebrew into the English anyway, all right? We just don't structure our words the same. So there's a, the first poem I have here is, is called A Bird Came Down the Walk by Emily Dickinson. All right? I know you guys are thinking, oh, you just, no, it's a good poem. And this is just a part of it, okay? He glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all abroad. They looked like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head. Now, I don't know about you, but in my normal talking, this is not how I describe birds. Right? And even like words like velvet, right? That's not really something that usually comes in our vocabulary unless we're talking about something that we're wearing. You know what I mean? So what's the point? The point is, is that it's a beautiful expression of a bird. And we can see that it's talking about a bird, but the language is flowery, all right? The next one I thought this is interesting because I, I want to see the emotion in this, which is another reason why you use a certain literary type. This is from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The earlier stanzas of this describe a strong, tough man. Okay? I just want you to know that. We're just taking a portion of it. But the earlier things describe this very tough, weathered guy. All right? And it's from the, the poem, The Village Blacksmith, so you can kind of figure out, right? But here's what it says. He goes on Sunday to the church and sits among his boys. He hears the parson pray and preach. He hears his daughter's voice singing in the village choir, and it makes his heart rejoice. It sounds to him like her mother's voice singing in paradise. He needs must, he needs must think of her once more, how in the grave she lies. 
And with his hard, rough hands, he wipes a tear out of his eyes. Folks, did that bring about some emotion? That's beautiful, isn't it? Well, that's part of what the structure of Job is trying to do. Now, again, we're going to miss some of that just because we don't see the cadence. We don't see the stanzas the way they are. But that's partly why Job, why Job is written in poetry form. And then there's another one called Old Man Rain. And this is just showing you the, the picture language that we're talking about, where you can kind of see the personification of things, right? Old man rain at the window pane, knocks and fumbles and knocks again. His long-nailed fingers slip and strain. Old man rain at the window pane, knocks all night, but knocks in vain. In other words, it's not coming in. Old man rain. Can you hear the rain hitting the window? All right, so that's, that's again, just, just a taste of what Job was written like so that we can hear and see the different things, not exactly like these poems, but, but there are words in there, there are stanzas in there, there are, there's structure in there to bring about these different purposes that God had in writing it. So now let's transition over to uh, Job the man. As we're thinking about Job the man, really what we're going to be answering are several questions. Who was Job, right? Where and when did he live? And what was Job's life like? And some of these things are obviously going to be answered earlier in the book than later. Job's home country gives us some insight into who he is. At the same time, we can't uh, be certain exactly where he lived. We just know that he lived in a given region. But I'm going to attempt to give a reasonable argument for one specific area of that general region of, of the, the Middle East, okay? And so that's what I'm going to try to do. So we're going to look at some scriptures that I hope will kind of put these things together. Now, this is what's fun, right? Because someone can look at this and say, that looks awfully academic. Well, <laughs> again, we have to look at some facts to try to put some things together, and there's some reasons for this, and I hope that they come clear. But first we have in the scriptures Genesis 36, 8 through 11. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Basemeth, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. And it's actually Teman is that name there. So just keep that in mind for a minute. And you're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about Esau for? We'll get there. Now we're going to stay in the same context, Genesis 36, as we see some genealogies going. And this is Genesis 36, verses 20 through 21 and 28. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, I'm going to skip those, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir and the land of Edom. These are the sons of Dishon. Uz and Aaron. Okay, now if we think back to what we just read, there's Seir is a part of Esau's group, but Seir, the Horite, also inhabited the land, so he's kind of parallel with him, and he has a son named Uz. Lamentate, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 49 7 says this against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts. Is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Teman was a direct descendant of, of Edom. Now look at the last one here, Lamentations 4.1. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. So we're going to put all this together. We have Edom beget Teman. We have a reference back to Teman, in Jeremiah 49 as a city, we have Seir, who's mentioned, who eventually has someone named Uz, right? And now we have these two things coming together where you have Edom and Uz kind of being called the same place. So now as you look at this map, and I realize it's, it's, it's the best map I could find, okay? And it's not good. But, uh, I mean, I, I really, really looked. 
But if you look at what we're seeing here and you see that larger circle, you can see where Edom is located. You can also see where they say the land of Uz is and roughly where Job lived. And that's, that's even more speculative. But the idea is that Edom, represented by one of the major cities of Teman, named after one of his sons, and then one of the sons of Seir, Uz, that region was named after him. And so they, they're together, they're near each other. And where it says that Edom was with Uz is the idea that where you see the word Edom there, they expanded a little bit. And they kind of started to crowd out those who lived in Uz. All right? It's just that simple. So geographically, we can have a pretty good idea of where he was. Now, most of you know the book very well. I'm not like, you know, oh, you're telling the story, okay? But we know that some enemies, we even read this this morning, some enemies came after him. Well, those enemies were the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans. And if you see where they're located, they would be in fairly close proximity to where Job lived. All right? So that's why I think that this leads us to believe that we have Job living um, outside of Canaan and separate from God's chosen people. Specifically, we're talking Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. He probably lived at the same time as the patriarchs. There is no indication that Job knew Abraham or about God's personal promise to him, meaning to Abraham. And he lived long before the law was ever given. And these are important elements, right? They're important elements because Job is living under what criteria? Well, we see him revealing that throughout this book. But it's not like we have record of God coming to him and giving him a specific covenant. He doesn't have the law laid out for him. So how and why is he doing what he's doing? That's pretty intriguing, isn't it? It really is. And the reason why I kind of pressed a little bit this idea of, okay, where is he living, is because we, we, we don't have any connection to him in the land of Canaan, which was what it was at the time, prior to the children of Israel coming back and taking it over. So now let's go back to, again, Job the man, and keep on looking at some of these things. Job is referenced in both the Old and the New Testaments. I want to give you a couple of passages here. It says, Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they should deliver, they should deliver neither son nor daughter, they, should, um, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Now, as, as we look at this verse, it's like, well, where is this coming from? Give me just a moment. I first want to tell you that in this context of Ezekiel 14, verses 18, um, uh, uh, verse 18 says a similar thing. The Lord is telling Ezekiel what will happen when a nation sins against God when he describes them as persistent unfaithfulness. That's straight out of the scriptures, straight out of Ezekiel 14. A nation that is living under persistent unfaithfulness will come under his judgment. All right? And what he's saying is this. The righteous, there's not going to be any residual help. The righteous are not going to be able to bring others out with them because the judgment is going to be so severe. They will be saved by their own righteousness alone, and only they would have been rescued. So he's basically saying, if you have a land where they're just completely against me, only those who really know me are going to make it out. That's what he says. And he gives the example of these three Let's face it, very righteous men from the Old Testament, Noah, Daniel, and Job. All 
There's New Testament reference as well. We will see that another time. All right. So we've looked at different aspects of Job right now, and now I want to transition over to his family. We're going to learn some things about him when it comes to even his family. Sorry, got ahead of myself there and again. All right. Uh, Job had seven sons. The number seven is often a sign of completion. And folks, that's all the farther we're going to go there. We're not going to try to relate this to, oh, well, maybe seven means... It just means that he had seven sons, and that was a real solid number. Well, why? Because sons were very valuable for what he was doing. Sons were, they, they were prized, not necessarily over daughters, but if you had a lot of sons, you had a lot of help. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. He had three daughters. So that equaled 10 children. And, and that combination, really that number indicates a ideal family. All right? A lot of sons to do the work. He had some daughters. And Job had one of those families where it's like, wow, God has filled his quiver. Okay? What about family life? As, we're t- as we look and we read about the, the um, uh, uh, feasts that his children had together, some think that the sons scheduled feasts in their own homes for the rest of their siblings. They just scheduled them. Like, okay, this is when you have everybody over, this is when you have everybody over, and so on, right? Others think it was feasts around their birthdays because it says their their appointed day, okay? So some think it was a birthday feast, and it probably wasn't just like what we do where you come over, you give a couple of gifts, you blow out some candles, and you go home. This is probably a multi-day feast, okay? They knew how to do it back then, right? See, we think Thanksgiving is over the top. Imagine a whole week of feasting. I'm, I'm on board, right? I like it. <laughs> so that's the idea that's going on behind here, okay? So either way, the, uh, they provide insight into Job's family life. The brothers were living semi-independently, right? They had their own homes. It doesn't say they had their own tents, The sisters were possibly younger and still at home. But there is joyful harmony among the children. They love each other. And they want to be together. Now, that's not reading too much into the text. They they enjoyed one another's company. They made sure that they were together on a regular basis. And it's obvious that they benefited from their father's wealth. Right? They, they enjoyed life. There is no outward indication that there was anything inappropriate or sinful about his children's parties. If we read into the text just a little bit, I think it made Job very happy to see his children's happiness. But verse 4 um, would have stood out as very unusual in both Job's contemporary culture and even Israel society where this may have been officially written later on in history. Within Job's household, the seven sons treated their sisters as equals. That's pretty cool, isn't it? We're talking about, again, a reflection of Job himself. His household would have been a reflection of who he is. The brothers had a respect for the sisters. The brothers made sure the sisters were included. The sisters were considered equals and a part of everything that the brothers were doing when it came to spending time together, even though it seemed like they were living semi-independently, probably on an estate of some kind. So we have a, a, a good family life here. Should we not expect, to a degree... Obviously, children make choices, but a good family life from someone who is leading a life as Joseph, as Joseph, as Job is leading. Okay, now we're not looking at his character yet. We're getting there. Here's the next thing that we see: Job's riches. We've already read through this a couple of times. I'm not going to go back to all that, but I'm just going to list them. Job had seven thousand sheep. Now I don't know what seven thousand sheep looks like. I mean, I can look at a picture in Australia or someplace like that and say, that's a lot of sheep, right? But in comparison, a man named uh, Nebal, described as very wealthy, 
had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. So what does that equal? Four thousand. He was called very wealthy as an individual. Job has seven thousand. Well, what did it matter if he had seven thousand sheep? Well, they would produce fleeces for clothes, hides for leather, milk and meat. A modern equivalent would be having a factory or two, right? These, these animals were for production. He had 3,000 camels. They were used for transportation and for carrying burdens. Camels may have allowed Job to have long-distance business. Today, we might think of the camels as a fleet of trucks, I don't know about how many businesses you know that own 3,000 trucks, but that's pretty much where Job was, all right? 500 pair of oxen. By the way, that's pair. So how many oxen is it? 1,000. The only reason to have this many oxen would be if Job was either semi-nomadic or settled. Semi-nomadic, a fancy way of saying he traveled around, but not very much, right? He had an established place. Think of... Even in ancient times, think of the farm that he would have had or uh, the, the places to grind grain or whatever that he would have had if there were a thousand working oxen. Like I say, e- even if we're talking about ancient times, man, that's, that's a lot of, I almost said horsepower, oxen power, all right? 500 female donkeys. Now, why do we talk about 500 female donkeys? Apparently, they were uh, preferred as working animals. There were probably some males around too, obviously, but they were the working animals, and also they would have produced milk as well. Don't ask me what it tastes like. They used it back then. I'm not going to drink donkey milk. Sorry. Okay? But apparently that's what they did. But the whole point was this was part of his estate, right? And then it says that he had a very large household. Job had a large staff of servants. And in case there was any misunderstanding of Job's wealth and prominence, verse 3 says, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Well, what's the reference point? Israel. We just saw on the map, what's East? Edom and Ur. I mean, Uz. Ur is too, but Uz is what we're talking about. So then just getting back to his family, he had seven sons and a large household of servants that made it possible to manage or work this very large estate. All right? And you say, what, again, why does that matter? Because as we're looking ahead and we see what Satan does, the scope is amazing. Not only the scope of what he had, but the scope of the loss. And we'll get into that later on. But now, as I said, I want to get into Job's character. Let me just read for you verse 1 one more time. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Let's just kind of go through those phrases. He was blameless. Job was an inwardly holy man. Right? That was his character. That was who he was inside. He was upright, outward relationships are mentioned here job treated others properly well isn't that what follows folks right if, if if you're where you should be on the inside in your soul then what comes out is should be upright and then um again kind of sort of repetitious but not there's another flavor that's that's thrown in here fearing god Job was a true follower of the Lord. He wasn't just a moralist. You get that? He wasn't just somebody who was following his own good standard or or he, he came to some type of moral code and that's what he was living by. He was a God fearer. And we're talking the true God of the Bible, not something or someone that he made up. And then it said he turned away from evil. Well, if blameless and upright wasn't enough, again, we had the detail that his life was characterized by living the opposite direction of sin. 
It gives you the physical idea that he was facing the other direction. We also saw in our reading that Job was an engaged and concerned dad, and he led them in worship. Although Job was blameless and upright, what Job says reveals that he did harbor some anxiety about his kids. Any of you ever worry about your children? Some of you kids are like, I don't. Well, it's because you're not there yet, right? But your parents worry about you. So here's Job, a very rich man, a flawless personal integrity flowing from a sincere devotion to God. He had an equally rich family life marked by happiness and care for one another. And he was also a rich man. He was concerned that during their feasting, his children may have sinned against God in their hearts, and he was fearful of what might happen to them. It was just a possibility, right? They might have thought something wrong against God while they're feasting. And so for each one, he made an offering to the Lord. Folks, he was, and by the way, it says after the cycle of the feast, okay? After all the parting was done, he met with his children. And he made a sacrifice on their behalf. What was he showing them? What was he telling them? Hey, sin has a price. And we need to maintain our relationship before the Lord. It needs to be something that's active. And so here he was teaching his children and ministering on behalf of his children. That's pretty cool, isn't it? But like I say, there was, there was something in the back of Joseph's mind. It's, it's subtle, but it's there. He was concerned about his kids. He was afraid in some ways that if they did something wrong, that they would be judged, and he didn't want that to happen. We're going to go through this pretty quickly here, but I want to look at the spiritual overview. This is going to be the bulk of the text, but I want to go through the spiritual overview of the book of Job. Although this book is an account of one ancient man's experience, it deals with some very important spiritual concepts. Just a reminder, today's an overview, all right? We will get into this. Job is one of the most personal spiritual accounts in the Bible. Few Bible characters have as much written about their personal circumstances as Job does. Even fewer convey as much about their personal thoughts and emotions as Job wrestles with deep spiritual issues. Even more rare is that Job did not write about himself. You think about that for a minute. We know that Moses struggled with some things. Well, who wrote the books that Moses appears in? Moses. How about the part of the New Testament where Paul is prominent? Who wrote those letters? Paul. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what I'm saying is this is really personal. And it's, and it's a lot of information about an individual, and he didn't even write about himself. How about David? Did David write about himself anywhere? In the Psalms, where he's pouring his heart out to God so many times? You see where I'm going? So this is relatively rare and even more rare when we're talking about someone who's writing, not writing about themselves, but someone who's writing about them. And it's detailed. As far as spiritual things are concerned, it reveals the hateful personality and destructive activity of Satan. We are going to cover that. We're just not going to be preoccupied with it. We're going to see what it says and then we're going to move on. Job's conversations with his friends expose the flawed spiritual beliefs of the world. What we will learn is still relevant today. And that's one of the most important aspects of the book. Nearly, nearly the entire last section of the book is an account of God making himself known to Job. Do you think there's something that we can learn there? Absolutely. And Job gives a future hope of life after death. We'll examine that. And then there are definite parallels in the book to the coming Messiah. So as we look at the book literally 
and we try to stay focused on the themes that are there, taking those words and those subjects and, and, and seeing how they support those themes. And as we work through his circumstances, his friends, and then God's response, right? We're going to make sure that we look at these different spiritual aspects. So where does that bring us to today? I want to leave us with a few things in summary. Job was a real man who lived in a real place with a real family. We can't lose sight of that. We, we, have, we have trouble knowing that there was a Paul and a Peter and etc. And kind of, you know, putting them in their own little world, right? When we see the circumstances of Job, it's real easy to say, yeah, uh, that's very painful. He lives over here. No, no part of Job is really our experience as well, all right? The other thing we need to understand is Job truly had it all. He was a very wealthy man, both spiritually and financially, and even probably socially, but with his family. He was, he was a, a wealthy man. But as we know, trouble still came. What are we obsessed with as Americans? Comfort. Not having any conflict. Leave me alone. Let me do my thing. Don't get involved in my rights. Don't change my lifestyle. Don't get in my way. I'm free. Listen, Job had a vast estate and there was no government. <laughs> Nobody taxed him, right? He had his own little fiefdom. It didn't insulate him. That's a lesson that we should learn on top of the lessons that we're going to learn through this, through this um, study. So I wanted to give us a general overview of the book to understand how we will work through this book moving forward. This is the understanding that we need to have. You have resp some responsibilities. I have some responsibilities. As we move through those responsibilities together, the whole purpose is, man, how, what, what did God say to me? How does he want me to live? How do I respond to sometimes potentially some, some really horrific circumstances? But as I've said before, when we talk about trials, different things like that, I just want us to understand, what you are going through is what you are going through. The scriptures and the principles are not relative as far as their truthfulness, as far as their applicableness. But your circumstances are. Meaning this, your trial is yours. And I don't have any right to say, oh, that doesn't measure up. Like, you're okay, you know. Just shake it off, buttercup. Right? That's, that's not my responsibility, and that's not my right to tell you that. Now, if someone's being foolish, that's one thing. But what someone considers a trial, and let's face it, there are times when we look at someone's life and we say, they absolutely are going through a trial. My point is this. These principles that we're going to be understanding from the Word of God, the things that we even have to kind of fight against as far as the philosophy of the world, they're relevant to your trials, no matter how big or small they are. Now, we're going to acknowledge what Job went through. But again, there's a reason why he went through what he did. And we'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. So as we work through this together, again, I realize that that's, that's a, there's a lot of information there. But here we have a guy who we don't see any other types of influences in relation to how we see the rest of the scriptures, you know, from, from uh, Abraham on, right? When everything was about the Jews and then Christ coming as a Jew and coming for the Jews, but then also uh, giving himself so that it could be spread to the Gentiles, right? The good news of Christ. But, but as that plan unfolded, there's always those people of grace that God is bringing to himself. And Job is one of those. 
And so we have kind of this independent guy where he's more like us. He's a Gentile. But God revealed himself to him. And God works some things out in his life that will be beneficial to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I would be remiss if I did not pray for, again, those who are just going through some difficult circumstances in their life. Father, as we go through this study, uh, uh, there, there is something to be learned about endurance and purpose and many other things. And yet we're also going to understand that not all of our questions might be answered. And so as we just consider our brothers and sisters who are or have been through deep waters, I pray, Father, that um, they would know that you are there with them, that you have gone through all of this with them, and that even as Christ said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We know that you are a loving God who will never turn your back on us. And yet we'll be confronted with the realities of Job's experience. So give us wisdom, Lord. Give us that endurance that we're talking about and teach us. There's some valuable lessons here that each one of us either can apply to our present or prepare for our future. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.